Well, good morning. I'm Pastor Ray. I'm so thankful that you're here today. I want to welcome all of you here this morning. I want to welcome those who are watching online, those listening on podcasts. We're thankful that you're here today. Would you turn to Luke chapter 10? We're going to be there. Uh, turn there in your smartphone, your ta tablet, your Bible, maybe the Bible that's in front of you. We want you to read it for yourself. Luke chapter 10. As you're turning there, I want to share that uh, we live in a world today that is seeking to live lives of transformation. We want to see our life transformed in one way or another. For instance, my family seeking the same thing. My little daughters, they're seeking to transform their life to being princesses. They wear the, these dress up clothes, and leave them all over our, our, our house and they wanna be transformed into these Disney princesses. My wife, she wants to transform our house into a house that's got 2000 pillows. I don't know if you're like that, but I go to bed at night and there's, they doubled overnight. I don't know what happened. Or if you're like me, college football's around the corner and you're hoping your football team, my football team is going to transform into a college winning championship uh, for their season. Well, as we look at Luke chapter 10, verses 25 and 37, what we're going to see is Luke, Dr. Luke, flushing out what a transformational life looks like. I have been on a quest to transform the home we own. Uh, we have this, this home and uh, we have ripped up all the carpet in it. it. It smelled real bad. It looked really bad. And so I got a buddy of mine to help transform the flooring. We bought a bunch of flooring and he began to teach me how we're going to lay this floor. And so we started at the front of the home and we began to lay this floor. Well, we were making good headway until we hit this one piece of subfloor. Subfloor is below the, the, basically the exterior floor underneath of it that sits on the rafters. It was rotten. It was bad. So he, he began to teach me you need to pull that up, Ray, and then we'll keep going with the flooring. So I take a hammer, I take a crowbar, and I'm trying to get this subflooring up so that we can put a new one down, and I can't do it. I mean, I'm trying all that I can. I'm, I'm prying, I'm banging on it. I'm trying to cut it down the middle, all these things. And I'm like, man, I, I don't know what to do. I look at him and go, I'm frustrated. And he goes, well, did you try the tool that's right there in front of you? I said, you know, the one that, I said, the one that's right in front of my nose? He said, yeah, that one, it's called a cat's paw. I said, no. He said, try it. So I get this little teeny tool, it's this big. I start ripping out the nails so quick and boom, that thing is out and I'm putting the subfloor in it and we transform the house. What we're gonna see here today is that in Luke chapter 10, we're gonna see this magical thing happen where the transformational life is right under our nose. And it's been there the whole time. Jesus gave this command. He said to love God and to love people, to love God and to love our neighbors as ourselves. It's been under our nose the whole time. It's some simple yet sensational. And if we did this, well, think about isolation. Think about those who've been walled off from society. Think about those who are searching for belonging. Maybe you feel like that you don't belong anywhere. Maybe you feel like that, you know, you, you just don't have a sense of community where you are. Well, that would be gone if we loved people and we love God. Think about uh, families. They wouldn't be ripped apart like they are. They'd be put back together. We'd see this unbelievable unity in the life of families. Uh, think about fear. You know, we're wary of other people because we don't know what they're thinking. And then they're thinking what we're thinking. And so they kind of distance themselves from us. And we have this fear going on. We wouldn't have fear if we loved God and we loved people, right? So as we look at Luke chapter 10, it's one of my favorite chapters in all of Scripture. And then we're going to learn in verse 25 and following uh, from an, a conversation that happens between this man and Jesus. Look at it with me. Then an expert in the law stood up to test him saying, 
teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now stop right there. The, the, this expert, this is a PhD scholar, Ivy League background individual, known prowess of all things religion. And what does he do? He wants to test Jesus. In the Greek, it's the word ekperazo. And that means he's going to undermine, he's going to try to chip away at Jesus and who he says he is and what uh, other people are trying to figure out about Jesus. Despite the fact Jesus has preached powerful sermons, despite the fact that Jesus has preached and seen powerful miracles take place, not many believe that Jesus is the Messiah in that day. Not many really want to believe that their life is headed toward torment in hell. Not many want to end their life at the foot of the cross so they can actually gain their life. That's included in this man. And, and so he asks a question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now this lawyer was asking because it, he didn't really want to know because the Jews already believed that there was an afterlife and they had their law and they felt like the law was their way to heaven. And then the Gentiles there, they're, they're wanting to clue in because they didn't have a way to heaven. And so they don't even know what they believe, if there's an afterlife or not. And, and that really connects to our culture today. Some of, us, some of us, maybe you in this room, that you don't believe in an afterlife. You came because someone invited you. I, I would argue and push into your life for a second that the rational person actually does believe in an afterlife. Here's why. If the rational person believes in an afterlife and they're wrong, they've just missed out on a few comforts in life when they die. They've lived a good life. But if the rational person does believe in the afterlife and there is an afterlife, what's going to happen is, is he's going to reach a huge reward in the eternal life. That's why it's a rational thought to believe in the afterlife. Maybe you need to think about that. So the, the expert in the, in the law asks this question, and I love Jesus. Jesus, he's so good because he doesn't always answer the question. He's the master teacher. What he does is he actually flips it and he asks a question. He says, well, what is written in the law? He says, how do you read it? The expert in the law is like, oh, I know this one. He goes, here's what it is. He answers to Jesus, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. So the Lord answers exactly the way that Jesus would have answered. And Jesus answered in Mark chapter 12. I mean, he, he really captures the essence of God, right? Love God, love people. This is what God wanted. This is how the law is summarized. Jesus, he knows that the, what the lawyer is really thinking. And what he does next is he, he just cuts to the quick. He slays the, the self-righteousness of the lawyer, the expert. And he asks the, the question to the lawyer and, he, and, and, and then he feeds him a line. He says, Look, well, you've answered correctly. Do this and you'll live. Do this and you live. Go for it. Good answer, bud. Go for it. Well, one, one time after teaching this scripture, a, a pastor had gotten done preaching this and a beauty pageant uh, Miss America contestant walked up to him and he said, Pastor, is it true that it, the God wants us to love God and to love people? And he said, well, yeah, that's what the text is preaching. And, and the beauty contestants would say, I have to do this all the time in order to have eternal life. And he said, yeah, you have to do that all the time. You have to love God all, all the while and you have to love people all the time just like you love yourself. And she said, well, that's impossible. He said, why? He's like, well, she goes, well, I have all kinds of women trying to undercut me to try to be Miss America and be this and that. And, and there's no way I want to love them all the time. And I want to love them just as much as, as, as uh, I love myself. And she walks away and she says, I can't handle this Christianity. It's absurd. And that's exactly what Jesus wants this man to understand, that it is absurd. 
of God's holiness. And God is asking, look, I gave you everything. You got to give me everything. And the lawyer's like, well, this is staggering. He's getting a little sweaty, he's squirming. He's like, man, is it hot in here? Whew, because I'm getting hot. And so he's trying to, once again, lower the bar. So the lawyer asks back, well, who's my neighbor? Who's my neighbor? Basically, this is the question behind the question. Do I have to love people who look like me, act like me, see the world the way I do? And then he's trying to minimize everything. He's basically saying, how far do I have to go without sinning? We've asked that question before. How far can I take her? How can I... How far can I take him? How far can I do this? How far can I do that? How far can I fudge these numbers? How far can I do this to go without sinning? So Jesus, not answering the question again, he tells a story. And he tells a story that's so unbelievable, so groundbreaking that we're still telling it today. So what does he say? He begins in verse 30. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell into the hand hands of robbers. They stripped him, beat him up and fled, leaving him half dead. Now stop there for a moment. How many of you heard this story before? Raise your hand real quick. Yeah, we've all heard this. I mean, if I was to fly halfway around the world today and I were to read this story, I bet you a lot of hands would go up. Why? Because this story has become universal. In fact, the phrase, the good Samaritan, actually, it's a phrase that everybody uses, not just Christians. Like, oh, that was a good Samaritan act. Good job. Because of this Story. So let's keep going. Verse 31. A priest happened to be going down that road. When he saw him, he passed by on the other side. In the same way, a Levite, when he arrived at the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. And Jesus says these words next. These three words, that would catch them all off guard. He says, but a Samaritan. Say that with me. But a Samaritan. At this point, they're laying back and now they're leaning forward. The guy that's standing, the expert, now he's even leaning forward. He's like, what in the world is he going to say next? Jesus says, but a Samaritan on his journey came up to him. And when he saw the man, he had compassion. He went over to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on olive oil and wine. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper and said, take care of him. When I come back, I'll reimburse you for whatever extra you spend. And with this story, Jesus completely flips everything on its head. With this story, what Jesus does is he completely redefines what it looks like to be a neighbor. With this story, Jesus says, you know, it's no longer good enough for you just to love people like you, like for the Jews, just to love the Jews. With this story, he says, you got to push outside of your, of, of outside of your demographic boundaries. He said, with this story, not only do you have to push outside your demographic boundaries, your neighbor isn't just the person living next to you or the person that's like you in your church or in your environment. Your neighbor is anyone who's in need. Jesus changes the entire dynamic right here. And then Jesus asks a question back to the lawyer. Like I said earlier, right? He's going to ask a question that completely <laughs> shocks the expert. He says, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? And now the audience is stunned and Jesus has blown them away. And now he's got the expert in the corner. And now the expert, he's standing there and he's thinking, why did I have to ask that stupid question? Now I'm a moron in front of all these people. And Jesus is going, okay, come on. 
It's like when I'm a, I'm a dad and I've got a daughter and, and I said, okay, is it a good idea that you threw that toy at your sister and now she has a big bump on her forehead? Is that a good idea? And my daughter goes, yes. No, it's not a good idea. You know it's a bad idea. You know it. You just, you're going to suffer consequences. Admit it. Now, now, admit it. And finally, 30 minutes later, she goes, it was a bad idea. She says it out loud. And the expert, he says the same thing. Verse 37. The one who showed mercy to him, he said. And Jesus said, go and do the same. Go and do. Go and do. Get out of your comfort zone. Go and do. And Jesus right here, he's going to give us two things. The first thing is this. He helped the lawyer understand it's impossible to please a holy God with our own self-efforts. The Bible describes our efforts, this lawyer's efforts, as mere filthy rags, as the prophet in Isaiah said. A filthy rag. Think of all the detestable things you could put on a filthy rag. Anything you can think of and then combine them all. And that is our efforts in the eyes of God. Think about it with me. Let's just say you were invited to the last royal wedding in England. You were invited and you go and you're wearing a black tie. It's a black tie affair and it's prestigious and the world's leaders are there and you have to come up with a gift for the, the bride and the groom. And, and so you decide, well, I'm gonna box up the pair of jeans that I was wearing when I was spreading manure the other day in my field. And I haven't washed them and they smell like poo. And now I just said that in church. So you wrap them up, you put them in a box, it smells, it's awful. You make the plane ride, everyone on the plane can smell it. You get there, you go up, you give it to the bride-to-be and she goes, ah, get that out of my face. This isn't the place or time for you to give me that kind of of a present. That's exactly what our efforts are before God. But that's the beauty of the gospel. Because Jesus is teaching the expert in the law that there's nothing that he could do to earn his way back to God. That Jesus' love, it's unearned. That Jesus' grace is unmerited. And phrases like, pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. Man, that's great motivational talk if you're a manager. But when it comes to your spirituality, that's rotten theology. Because God's love and grace does what only it does. And it offers it to us because we don't deserve it at all. And what it does is it kills selfishness. It kills pride. And it helps us understand it's only by God's grace. And because it's only by God's grace that we can have a relationship with him, if we receive that free gift of God, well then man, boy, we should surely live it out. And the second thing Jesus is saying here is that he's calling out to all Christians that their mere mundane life, as my good friend Kevin Azell says, that that life is more than just drawing a paycheck. And Jesus says this over and over again in the New Testament. He's like, hey, there's a different way, a transformational way to live your life. And so I want to draw your attention to four things in the story that Jesus tells. The first thing is that this, the world is full of hurt and suffering. The world is full of hurt and suffering. Verse 30, it says, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him, they beat him and fled, leaving him half dead. Jesus didn't didn't disclose 
what kind of race the man was. But most would say that he was a Jew and most would say he was a Jew today. And he's on this road from Jerusalem to Jericho, a 3,300 foot drop. It's a long, nasty, horrible, gnarly road. And it's one that no one wanted to go through and there was known robbers and he's beaten. He's left half dead. And it's a story of suffering and hurt. And it reminds me of the world we're living in today. It's a world today where we see child abuse and addiction, relationship heartaches and drug epidemics and racism, and confusion and out of control debt and sexual abuse and deep division, hate. And we could go on and on and on. Maybe we've experienced our own, our own suffering on the Jericho Road. See, hurt and suffering, it's no respecter of person. And maybe it enters our home or it enters our business or it enters our classroom or enters our apartment. And one historian called the Jericho Road, the bloody way. And even though I'm grateful, I mean, the the strides we've made in our world, did you know, with all the negative things that we hear all the time, did you know that today, this is incredible, that there is more clean water available through for people all around the world than there ever has been in history. Did you know that? It's incredible. Did you know that we have so many advances and help so many more people than the news and, and what we hear all today around the world that people are being helped? Did you know that? Even all of the good news, we still see our Jericho, our bloody way in our culture. When you look at the poverty that still exists in Southern Indiana, when you look at the heroin epidemic, that not just is in our area, but I mean, it's all over. When you look at the families that are truly being destroyed, when you look at all of the social and racism and hate and bitterness, we have our own bloody way, don't we? Now, now maybe today, you, God has blessed you. You've not really experienced much of the Jericho Road. And I would say that that is an amazing place to be and that's a blessing from God. But that doesn't mean that you are just to stay outside of it. It means that you are supposed to go on the Jericho Road and help those who have been on it themselves. And that leads me to really my second point. That is that there are many who never help heal the hurt and suffering. Jesus said that there were three travelers on the Jericho road. How how many of them did not stop to help? How many? How many? How many? Two. Two out of the three, what kind of percentage is that? 66 and some change percent, right? Did not stop to help. That is not good math, is it? Not many stop to help. Not many are willing. And Jesus said that they just happened to be going down. Basically, in God's providence, that they were the remedy to the situation, and yet they didn't step up. I don't know what went through the priest's mind and the Levite's mind, but, but I, could, I could put myself in their shoes. They're going from Jerusalem to Jer- Jericho. They're going from their place of work to their place of refuge in their home. The Bible talks about how the, the, the priests would serve for over a month in the temple. And then they would get a respite. And so maybe the, the priest is walking home. He's exhausted. He's tired. He's walking down the treacherous path. He's just been with God. He's just been hearing the words of love God and love your neighbor as yourself. He's been around the presence of God in the temple. And yet, even though he's been around God, it hasn't changed him. And he thinks, oh, I, I just can't do it. I'm off the clock. Somebody else will help. 
Or maybe one of those others' excuses was skepticism, like, well, I'll just end up feeling ripped off, or that's not really going to help us, it's going to hurt more. Or, man, I'd love to, but man, people are counting me down the way. Or maybe there's another excuse. Maybe it, it could just to prove too costly for him. There's a scene in Saving Private Ryan. And I heard this illustration. It's so good. Where the guy's at the end of the hallway crying, if you don't remember the scene. And he's crying at the, at the end of this hallway because his friend is literally getting stabbed to death. And I remember watching the movie thinking, you pansy, get up, stop crying and go hit that guy. Like go stop your friend from getting stabbed to death, right? It's easy for us to judge and go, man, Step up and help, but we don't really know how we'll respond, right? See, here's for the individual, the priest. If he would have done that, he would have had to go through all this cleansing, all of this work. Probably wouldn't have been able to see his family a couple weeks. He'd have been out of the rotation as a priest. His religion literally prevented him from being on mission. We all have our excuses. Gandhi says it this way, I like your Christ. I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. And this is why Jesus points out the third thing I wanted to share. The Good Samaritan is our example of living the transformational life. Verse 33, but a Samaritan on his journey came to him and when he saw the man, he had compassion. Now this is when the crowd is really leaning in like I shared earlier. They were like, what? A Samaritan has compassion on a Jew? Here's the deal. They were raised to hate each other. The Jews hated the Samaritans. Samaritans hated the Jew. It was a classic example of racism at its best. The Pharisees would cuss using the name Samaritans, okay? At night, the Jews would pray, you know, bless mom, bless dad, don't let any Samaritans be brought up into the resurrection of the just. I mean, this is what, how bad it was. One author, he says, racism isn't born, it's taught. That's why the brother of Jesus, he says, if however you show favoritism, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. You see, this is a sin issue, not a skin issue. So what does the Samaritan do? How, how are we to be the example of the great Samaritan? Well, I'll give you a few things. First of all, the Samaritan, he gets off his donkey. You'll get that later, okay? Took the nine o'clock crowd at least five minutes. He gets off his donkey, okay? And the second thing he does is he takes all of his time, he takes all of his talents, he takes all of his treasure, and he begins to help the individual. He pours oil, and some of you are getting that, by the way, right now. You're sorry, I'm hearing the ripple of laughter. But he pours oil and wine on the individual and helps. And then he stays overnight with a Samaritan? What? It's an extra mile kind of thing. And the third thing he does is right there that he endures to the end to remedy the situation. And this is what a transformational life looks like. One of the most moving stories of a good Samaritan I've ever, I've ever read happened in 1996. In 1996, there was a planned Ku Klux Klan rally. And the, and, the, and the police knew about this rally. And so they're obviously forming all these barricades. And it's a horrible, horrible thing altogether, right? But they're there. And then there's all these protesters on the other side. Well, as the rally is happening with the Ku Klux Klan, one of its members infiltrates the protesting side. And he's got this Confederate flag on his T-shirt. And he's got all these racist remarks on, tattooed on his arms. And one of the protesters recognizes that he's not among them. And he says, kill the 
Nazi. And so they start beating this individual. And then this 18-year-old African-American girl goes through the crowd and sprawls on this man and protects him. Her name is Keisha Thomas. Now, why would an African-American girl, 18 years of age, throw her body on someone like that? It's because of her faith and it's because of what her Jesus said about being a neighbor. You see, we live in a culture that prizes efficiency and success and influence. And if you're not like that, well, then you're not worth crossing the street for. But in the kingdom of God, you cross the street for anyone. You may come in here today and you may go, man, you see so-and-so and you see that person and that person. You're like, man, they got it all together. Look at them. They're like the saints. Look at them, how they, they must like read their Bible 10 hours a day and they must do all these things. And you're like, there, there's no way I could ever be like that. But see, the kingdom of God loves everybody the same, that he came to, went to the cross just as much for you as he did for that person who you think has it all together. See, the kingdom of God was born out of a, a Jesus who crossed the street for all. And there's wounded people all around us. There's wounded neighbors all around us. And it, it's invisible to the eye. I mean, there's people hurting, carrying wounds of their past, or there's people who have broken families and are struggling. There's parents who have been absent and there's pain from divorce that is just devastated. Or there's addiction. You know that that half Americans in our culture today, they struggle with addiction, whether it's drugs or whether it's alcohol or whether it's porn or whether it's gambling or whether it's some financial ruin. It's all around us. And so here's my question. What if for one month, what if for one month we just love God and love people? What if for one month we said, we're going to do it. We're going to do it for one month. I'm going to own this. You know what happened? It would change the world. It would change the face of culture if just for one month we loved God and we loved people as ourselves. Sounds like Jesus. And here's where this has hit me so hard. This is a little story into how I've experienced this kind of love. Okay, so I, I, I went to undergraduate school. I got my, mass, or my, my degree in communications. And I paid a lot of money for that education. And uh, I just paid it off a year ago, okay? I took a lot of loans out for it. And, and, I, and I was so in debt. Um, my senior year, I was somewhat depressed. And, and at the same time, God was leading me into becoming a pastor. And so I felt, okay, I need to go to graduate school because I need a lot of help, okay? And so I needed all the edu education that I, need, that I could. And so I go to this graduate school, but I said, God, the one thing I need is I need you to help me pay for this deal. I'm not going to take out a penny of debt. So I worked two jobs and plus I'm dating now my, now my now wife, some broke folks. Okay. She's not expensive, but school was all right. So I'm, I'm working two jobs and I'm, 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 I'm serving at a church and it came time towards the end of my graduate uh, experience that I owed all this money for this whole year. And I just burned through everything. Not because I was a spendthrift, but because ramen noodles and peanut butter jelly still wasn't saving the day. All right. So what happened was, is I told someone kind of close to me, I said, I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to get out of school. I, I just can't afford it. And so in that moment, he saw the need to cross the street 
in my life, so to speak. And he begins to rally all these people behind the scenes that I didn't even know about. And they begin to give him money and they collect all this money and he presents it to him and he says, this is enough to get you through school. Don't quit. Keep going. Sounds a lot like Jesus, doesn't it? And here's why I tell you that. Because he didn't know how, he didn't know how critical of a juncture it was for me. Had he not done that, I don't know if I would be here today. And we don't know if we don't cross the street how critical it is in the life of someone else. Jesus saw fit to cross the street. And so we need to. And that leads me to my fourth thing. And that is that we have an even greater example than the Samaritan in Christ. We have a greater example than the Samaritan in Christ. Here's why I say that. Because we walk all down the Jericho Road, every one of us. But, but we didn't have robbers beat us up and leave us half for dead. We chose to inflict pain upon our life by our decisions, by our sin. And, and, and the Bible says that it left us not half dead, but completely dead in our trespasses and our sin. And what Jesus did is he said, that's not good enough. And so he steps out of heaven and he puts on flesh and he comes to earth and he walks the Bethlehem road. And then he walks up a hill called Golgotha and he gets upon a cross and he lays his life down. The Samaritan, right? The Samaritan gave up two nights stay at a hotel. It cost him money. But for Jesus Christ, it cost him his life. He would become the greatest of neighbors the world has ever seen. The Samaritan, he poured oil and, and, and wine on the hurting Jew. And Jesus Christ, he spilled out his blood for us to impute his righteousness upon our life so that we can have a relationship and find our way back to God through the blood of Jesus Christ, through faith and trust in him, Jesus becoming our greatest neighbor. The greatest words ever spoken for God so loved the world that he gave his only son Whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. He became the greatest neighbor. He's our greatest example. And he propels us in our life to live it out just like he did.